wrap up Hebrews. We've been through most of the theological stuff, which is sort of why I had hoped to finish last week. This week is mostly closing up an exhortation. So we will probably either get done early or do lots of bunny trails. I don't care which. So just sort of recap. I said a couple times that I'm of the opinion that Paul wrote the letter to Hebrews just because of the sentence construction and so forth. It has the flavor of a pastoral letter which is written to a community that is having doubts about Yeshua. Clearly written to a Jewish community of some kind, Hebrew community. And what I sort of liken it to is in the Gospels when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent his disciples to Yeshua and said, are you the Messiah or do we look for another? So the idea that you have a strong believer and a prophet like John who, sitting in jail, begins to have doubts and wonder if he's gotten it wrong because his expectation, of course, was the Messiah was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And when that didn't happen, he sent off to Yeshua and said, are you the real deal or, or is there somebody else? Of course, Yeshua answered him by miracles. And I sort of get the impression that this letter is of the same character. You've got a Hebrew community that knows the gospel and just sort of needs to be bucked up and confirmed in their belief. That's the way the letter feels to me. The outline of the letter that we went through before is he starts off by comparing Yeshua to angels and demonstrates that Yeshua is above angels. He then goes through and compares men to angels and then us to Yeshua. So the idea is Yeshua is above angels, we're below angels, Yeshua is our brother, therefore we're going to inherit with him. And then he compares Yeshua to Moses, Moses being a servant in the house, Yeshua being the heir and the son in the house. And then he goes through and compares Yeshua to the earthly priesthood. So you have this theological treatise, if you will, comparing Yeshua to all of creation and establishing his place therein. So at the end of it, at this point, he's switching from theology back to encouragement. So chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And of course, there he's referring back to when Abraham does lunch with the three visitors on their way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham showed hospitality to a stranger, and they were angels that he was entertaining. And the idea is, if it happened to Abraham, it could possibly happen to you. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Two ways to read that. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. That can mean you are in the body of Messiah, and so if one part of the body is in prison, you got to sort of be of the opinion that you are too. That's one way to read it. The other way to read it is, earlier on in the letter, he was talking about the persecution that this community had gone through. So it could be a reference back to the persecution that they had experienced. Verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Park here for just a minute. 
Paul, in his other letters, and again, I'm making the tacit assumption here that Paul wrote this one too, talks fairly extensively about sexual purity. Makes a big deal about it in Romans, for example. Reading some of the rabbinic stuff that I've read, and I'm not a rabbinic scholar, apparently in Israel there is a fair amount of unmarried fooling around. And in fact, the rabbis don't particularly condemn that, which was kind of a surprise to me, but apparently that's the case. They're very big on marriage and no adultery, but among uncommitted people, not so stringent. Anyway, this thing that I read that was interesting said that Paul's problem with sexual immorality was more a reaction to slavery than it was to sex per se. Because in the empire, slaves were property. And one of the things that was routinely done was slaves were used or abused or whatever you want by whoever owned them. So the sexual immorality that Paul is talking about may have been spoken of in the context of you are dealing with someone who is not free to refuse your advances. The assertion in this article I read is that's one of the reasons that he came down so hard on all kinds of sexual immorality is because it was intimately wrapped up in slavery. Don't know if that's true, but I find it kind of fascinating because one of the things that God is very big on is liberty and choice. So if you have these households that are run by slaves with relatively few masters, and if the attitude is, gee, having sex with someone of your own class involves all sorts of questions like marriage and somebody who's free to choose, where none of those apply to having sex with a slave. Hence, it was very prevalent that slaves were routinely used in that way. And this article I read was saying that one of the reasons that Paul is hitting that so heavily is he is talking in the context of people who are really not free to make a choice. And coupled with what I just said about my understanding of the current rabbinic attitude toward sex among people who are not married to other people, in other words, what we would call fornication, I just found it an interesting thought, and I don't know where to go with it from there, but I thought it was interesting. But having said that, we're back now to verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And again, those are two different things. Sexually immoral is what we've been talking about. Adultery is entirely different, and no rabbinic source that I know of is soft on adultery. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Standard preacherly stuff. I don't have anything to embellish with. I mean, good, good lesson. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 8, Yeshua Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. 
For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. This is all by way of not being wed to the world. So first thing is obviously don't be a lover of money. And at the end of it, don't also be one who is attached to food. So all of this is by way of talking about being attached to the flesh instead of being attached to the spirit. The other thing to spend just a minute on, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. One of the things that we have that is a blessing and a curse is communications. We have got the best communications that have ever existed in the history of the planet, as far as I know. So every so-and-so with a three-day pass and a briefcase and a new theory about something can find himself an audience on the internet or on the radio or on the television. And sometimes such people can break traditional heresies. In other words, all of us, in this church at least, have come out of some Sunday denomination because we said, huh, I don't see anywhere that it says that you shouldn't worship on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is seventh day of the week, not the first. I don't see anywhere where the Torah has been done away with. So from that perspective, communication in our case, I think has been good because it's opened us up to things that if you lived in a village with a village priest and you only occasionally saw other people when you went up to the county fair, your horizons are really very limited. And if you are someplace where the Word of God is being taught accurately, that's good. But if you're someplace where the Word of God is not being taught accurately, that's bad because you don't ever hear anything else. And of course, in lots of places in the world, the scriptures have not been freely available. So you couldn't check it yourself. You had to depend on somebody to explain it to you. And so if you got in the sphere of somebody who was not explaining it to you accurately, you had no way of knowing. So it's good and bad. Communication has brought a lot of people back to what I consider to be the purity of the scriptures. It's also led a lot of people into some strange places. There's a group out there that, I don't know what they call themselves, but they say that the Sabbath resets every new moon. I can't find any place for that in scripture. All that stuff's out there. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, you need to be careful. And especially messianics need to be careful because we're a group that likes to study. We like to know stuff. And if somebody with a three-day pass in a briefcase comes through and says, I have a new, boy, you just, messianics will flock around him. And that's one of the reasons we do this. And we do two hours of Midrash every Shabbat is so we can all sit around. And if one of us is heading off into the North 40, somebody will reel him in. Or the one who's being reeled in will be reeled the other way. I mean, it goes either way, but I'm just saying the idea that you've got a bunch of people sitting around discussing the same passage of Scripture is some protection against that. Verse 10, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Yeshua also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. A couple of things. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What he's talking about there is obviously the Mishkan, 
or the tabernacle or the temple. And the idea that you have three orders of priesthood, you have the order according to Levi or Aaron, you have the order according to Melchizedek, and then you have the priesthood of all believers. And what he's saying here is that the priesthood according to Aaron, assuming they are not believers in Yeshua, can't eat of the sacrifices at our altar just as we can't eat of the sacrifices at their altar. Sacrifices. As we've said many times, there are lots of sacrifices that occur in the temple that have nothing to do with sin. And this is specifically referring to sin offerings that are burned outside the camp. Okay, Sin offerings, as I remember, are not consumed. As in, they don't get eaten. All the other offerings, the priest gets a portion of, or in some cases gets the whole thing, depending on what kind of an offering it is. But the sin offerings, I don't believe, are for human consumption. But anyway, the point here is that you do have the disposal of an offering outside of the camp. And the red heifer is also burned outside of the camp. Actually, let's, let's take a minute and, and talk about that. The, the red heifer, nobody including me understands. Rabbis don't understand it. I don't understand it. What a red heifer is, is a tahor to my mirror. Tahor and my are clean and unclean. It has nothing to do with sanitation. It has to do with life and death. So a person who is... Tahor, which is to say clean, who touches a red heifer, ashes, becomes unclean. A person who is unclean, who touches the ashes, becomes clean. So the only way to get purified after contact with a dead body, for example, is through the ashes of the red heifer. So it's just weird. Having said that, I've seen people that tried to compare the heifer to Yeshua. And certainly he is able to take the impure and make it pure. He does that, for example, at the wedding at Cana, where he takes the water that has the ash of the heifer and he turns it into perfectly good wine. He is able to heal lepers. And typically a leper has to be put outside the camp for a period of time until the lesions go away. Then he has to go through the purification, etc. And Yeshua is able to get rid of the lesions and make his skin whole. And then he says, go to the priest and do all the stuff the priest now tells you. So Yeshua is clearly able to change things from the realm of death into the realm of life. What I don't see is going the other way, which is what the red heifer does. I just don't see that. Pick it up at 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reports that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And here he's referring back to chapter 11. Remember he said in chapter 11, when we were going through all of the faith stuff, that all of these people did things in faith, never having received the thing that was promised. And he further says that they were all nomads and sojourners and that they were looking for a city that was yet to come. So he's referring back to that here and he's saying that like those people who are listed in chapter 11 we also have no lasting city and we are looking for the city to come. And then if you back up to the beginning of tonight's passage where he's saying 
don't get enamored of money, don't get enamored of food. The whole thing is by way of saying that this existence that you're in now is transitory. And the thing that you are looking for is the city that is to come, which, of course, we believe is the new Jerusalem. Verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, we've said lots of times that there's three orders of priesthood. The order according to Aaron, the order according to Melchizedek, and all the rest of us. And for many in the Sunday church, they lose track of that distinction. And they say that we as priests have somehow replaced the Levites. It's not true. We are, in fact, priests, but we are priests of a different order. We are not authorized to go into the tabernacle and sacrifice because some of us may be, but at least I don't know of anybody who is of the order of Aaron. Similarly, we're not of the order of Melchizedek. There's only one of those. That's Yeshua. So we are of a third order of priesthood, who is the priesthood of all believers. And this is where it says what sacrifices we bring. And we bring the sacrifice of praise, and we bring the sacrifice of good works. The order of priests that served the Father were the Levites, Aaron. Yeshua is his own order of priests, and so who do you suppose our order of priests deals with? The Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that's abroad in the world today. But the idea is that each order of priesthood has a different venue for sacrifice. Each of us has a different focus, if you will, in our worship. So the Levites are focused on Jehovah, what we call God the Father. Yeshua is his own order, and then we, through the Holy Spirit, are focused. That way we bring our sacrifice of praise, because he's the one that's abroad in the world. I'm all the way down to verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Now, again, I find that kind of an interesting phrase. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. One would have thought that the grammatical conclusion to that is it would be of no advantage to them. But that's not what he says. He says, for you to give them such trouble that they find their ministry difficult is of no advantage to you. And, of course, the idea there, I think, is that if you are behaving in such a way that the people that you go to for spiritual advice look at you and say, what do you get, cornflakes for brains? You're, in fact, the one that suffers. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And I see this as being Paul, because he's going to talk about Timothy in just a minute. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Yeshua, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Yeshua Messiah, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 22. 
I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So this has the feeling to me that it's being written by Paul from Rome. We talked fairly extensively about who wrote it and why the person who wrote it might want to remain anonymous. So there we are. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. Let us show